Good evening, Dave. Broadcasting live from Farpoint Station at the edge of the Alpha Quadrant, this is Geekistry Episode 59. I am Admiral Michael Gaines. And I am Commander Bryce Irwin. You guys who are listening to the show can find show info, enlightening and entertaining articles, and the Geekistry forums at www.geekistry.com. Send us feedback to feedback at geekistry.com, or leave us a voice message and be on the show. Call 734-418-7077 and leave us something awesome. Operators are standing by, and if you leave a voicemail now, we'll double the time that you're on the show. Not valid in Alaska, Hawaii. Boy, we're going to do these to accepted. <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, one of our listeners, thank you very much for listening. His name is Yay. Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice sends us uh, a Beetlejuice, little Beetlejuice, feedback Beetlejuice. based on our conversation. I think it was the first show where we, mm-hmm. or 58, where we were talking about uh, 3D. And he says, Bryce, can't understand your great dislike for 3D. Go see if you can get to a Best Buy or a place with a plasma TV and active glasses. Better yet, see if you can find someone with one and Despicable Me, the movie. It will make you change your mind. Computer animation movies are much better for 3D. The effect on live movies are good, but computer animation is amazing. It isn't dark at all. The movie has both general screen depth and the things coming out of the screen. Give it a shot on a home TV before you write it off. So, Beetlejuice... I've actually seen a lot of home theater 3D, and I'm going to stick with my guns. I am not sold. I have actually seen Despicable Me on home theater 3D, and while I thought, yeah, it uh, it showcased the 3D effect very well, you're right in that it's really good for CGI and very crisp animation and things like that, but it takes film, which I consider to be an art form, and just darkens the heck out of it, makes it really muddy. And I think that's one of the big reasons I'm not a fan for 3D in the theaters. It seems very gimmicky, and I think that it's been a gimmick, um, you know, since it started back in the since 50s. Since the 50s, yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't hate it. I think 3D was actually done to really good effect on uh, Avatar, but you know, I just saw Transformers 3, or yeah, Transformers 3: Dark in the Moon here not too long ago, and that movie was shot in 3D with the, with the uh, intention to actually use the 3D to its fullest extent. And I didn't really like Transformers 3. I thought that it actually didn't need 3D to be a halfway decent movie. And again, it was just muddied and um, dark and took Michael Bay's efforts as a director. And regardless of how much you like him as a director, he is a visually (laughs) stunning director, if nothing else. And I'd like to kind of see his visually stunning work without being dimmed. And so that's uh, that's my problem with 3D. But thank you for writing in, giving us your opinion. As you can see, we did put it on the air. And I wanted to address it directly. I went to see uh, a Sony demonstration last week. I have a, a friend who works at Sony, and uh, she invited a bunch of us to uh, to go see some of the new technology that they have there. And I saw 
the Sony 3D projector that's not out yet. And it was impressive, but I'm not still sold on 3D yet. If you took all the major objects that are on screen and turn them into two-dimensional paper, and they just sort of like move in front of each other. Mm-hmm. That's what it's like. Mm-hmm. I there's, agree. there's like, yeah, if somebody's pointing a stick at you, the stick seems closer. I, I, I get that. The, the problem that I've got with the whole thing is that it just, to me, looks like, like two-dimensional paper cutouts moving in front of each other. There's some depth, but it's not the depth that I would want if I were to spend like several thousand dollars on something. Two things. One, I, from a home 3D standpoint, I don't like wearing the glasses in my house. I find that obnoxious and right. uh, just intrusive. And I mean, maybe it's because I wear glasses, just, you know, optically corrected glasses. Mm-hmm. And I don't like putting the glasses on top of my regular glasses. And, and I'm not going to go out and spend, you know, 500 bucks and get prescription 3D glasses just so I can watch it in my house. You Bottom, imagine. It, well, yeah. <laughs> Bottom line, I just don't like it. You know, and uh, if they... If they get to the point where they can make some sort of like holographic TV or something, you know, maybe, maybe that would be cool. I I really don't know. But going back to the whole 2D stereoscopic kind of feeling that most of these movies have, Avatar did it well in the sense that Mm -hmm. Cameron chose to do his 3D with peripheral things. A good example of that would be a lot of his forest scenes on Pandora where there's like dust particles in the air or little Mm -hmm. like water droplets floating around. And that really immersed you into that movie, whereas it wasn't so much there were only a, there weren't too many scenes in Avatar where I remember like something leaping off of the screen at you or being super gimmicky. Yeah, and I think a lot of when they do the um, the two D movies that are filmed two D and then they try to post convert them into three D, the people that are doing the post conversion are you know doing some crazy like you said two D paper layering thing there, yeah. and it just doesn't work well. Not to mention the fact it darkens everything. So, just recently, they've finally posted pictures of the new Superman actor, Henry Cavill, in his new Superman outfit. If you want to see the outfit, go up to geekistry.com. It's actually on the front page right now in one of the recent posts. Uh, You can check it out. What do you think? Do you like it or dislike it? As I said in the article, Spock is not impressed. I'm not digging it, dude. I'm Uh, seriously annoyed by it. It's like, it's, it's just more modern superhero filmic heartless soulless bs <laughs> what is <laughs> to say it any costume? other way it's like why does everything have to be dark what's with the co- let's start with the costume okay. it looks like an aquaman costume it's got scales the s is far too big i don't mind the size of the s from what you can tell but i, I don't I don't know that I like it raised up as much as it is. Because in the comics, I think he got the suit from material that was in the the Kryptonian craft, right? Right. Okay. So I guess it could be some weird alien fabric, and that makes sense. And I guess I'm all right with that. I just don't think I would have textured it this much. But my biggest deal is with the color. They did the same thing with Superman Returns. The color is all like you know, dark red and maroon, and maybe we're just not seeing this in the right light. We're not being fair to it. I mean, the mm-hmm. dimensions of everything look okay to me. But it's just, you know, at least he doesn't have, like, shoulder armor and, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it, I'm still just like, why is it so damn dark? 
Why does everything have to be dark? Superman, as we said in the last show, Superman is a positive, morally positive character. He is not Batman. And just because Batman has success with being dark does not mean Superman would or should. And I don't understand why they keep going this route. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why either. I I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to bring uh, superheroes into this dark cinematic world and and people like you and i just want a nice happy movie is that so wrong to ask for is a nice happy movie yes it's superman strange visitor from another planet who came to earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men and who disguised as clark kent fights a never-ending battle for truth justice and the american way i think what it is is we want our heroes to be heroes heroes there are exceptions like batman where he's sometimes ambiguous. But even Batman in the end is a hero, you know? Mm-hmm. But he's dark. But not all of them are dark. Nor should they be. I, look, I'm just going to cite recent Captain America movie, which yeah. I thought was really great. Not, you know, perfect by any means, but it was a good movie. And there's a good example of, of something that could have been super cheesy, and they made it pretty cool. And they kept true to the character. They kept true to the coloration. They kept true to just him being a positive Dudley Do-Right kind of guy, and that's what you want to see, because he's not the Punisher, and he's not yeah. Wolverine. His suit looks a little plasticky, yep. um, although I, in in the defense of the design of the costume, the, the boots have the right cut to them. You mean like um, the, the little notch? The little notch, notch in it, thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, the belt looks to be right yeah. from what you can see. I can't tell if he's wearing the mantis or not, but I assume he is. Yeah, I can't I, I, I can't tell either. And, as, and but, as ridiculous as that is, I still want to see him because that's the character. But, but there's one thing, there's <laughs> one thing that very mantis. few people have really, really noticed with this entire pro- with this entire thing. The curl? The, exactly, the curl in his hair. Where did that go? Well, I it, okay. As I look in the picture, there's kind of a shadowed area. I think yeah. that could be the curl. The other no. thing is it could just be something where it's just up in that sh- particular shot. But there's another shot of him as, I guess, I don't know what he's doing. He's in Clark Kent gear, but not with the glasses, and he's got a curl on that one. Oh. I think the guy looks okay. Actually, I'm happy to see you know a guy who's not 20 years old. Yeah. that That's my biggest thing, is I'm glad they mm-hmm. didn't go that route with him. So I'm <laughs> glad he's older. Yeah, and and let me say this. I think that Henry Cavill himself, his look for Superman, I think is great. It's just the suit that's bugging me. No, and I agree with you, and I think it's just one of those things where it's the darkness. It's like, why do people always feel they have to tamper? It's it's funny. On the Ain't It Cool News article that I originally saw the story breaking in with Mm -hmm. the picture... It's an, it's interesting. They have Henry Cavill in this new outfit in this new picture where he's kind of breaking through or whatever a, a bank vault, and right below it they have an ad for Sideshow Toys' new um, Superman the movie figure with the Christopher Lee- Reeve mold, mm. and it's an awesome little figure. Like I'm not super big on buying toys as an adult, but that one is really really awesome. And the striking contrast between Superman the movie's outfit and this outfit is. It's well, it's striking. It's what I just said, mm-hmm. and and Reeves' outfit is better, in in my opinion. Talking about costumes and everything reminded me of this. Uh, just like a day or two ago, they released pictures of Anne Hathaway as Catwoman. Did you see this? Yeah, I did see it. What uh, are so, your thoughts on that one? She looks like a biker chick, and that's fine with me. <laughs> I um I I didn't see enough of the, it. You just don't see enough of the costume. No, you so, don't see enough of the costume. But it's, it's hard Anne to say Anne Hathaway in black leather and um 
yeah, it works. if if anything, well, outside of that, <laughs> my friend, anything, anything, uh, you can't see anything, and she no. looks more like maybe they're doing a Catwoman that's in the vein of Julie Newmar mm-hmm. off of the old Batman series where she's got her hair down and she's maybe got some like cattier things going on, but you really can't tell. And plus, yeah. which it's one of those things where it's either a set picture of her in a scene or it's an actual still from a scene they've shot, so you don't even know what part of the movie it's in. Yeah. It could be like they took um, Michelle Pfeiffer without her mask when her costume was all ripped off in the third act of Batman Returns and say, mm-hmm. that's the Catwoman costume. Well, it really wasn't, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. she's got some kind of goggles that look like she's got some kind of ears or something on them. Like maybe if she flips them up, it looks like she's got ears. And in that case, it would kind of look like the uh, Jim Lee version of Catwoman, yeah. which I like actually quite a lot with the big goggles. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll see. Uh, Mars needs water. Uh, going to a uh, brief astronomy news, um, uh, scientists have stated that there is evidence of water on Mars, but not really. What does that mean? <laughs> so they make this big announcement that there is evidence of flowing water on Mars, which is a big deal because you need water for well life as we know it you know not we're not talking about like silicon creatures that that <laughs> like run through tunnels and and write no kill i there are a lot of people that say that you need water in order to have life so can mars have life how do they know there's flowing water what okay they- so they they were looking at these craters uh, near the equator and they were they were seeing these streaks and they're saying that the streaks may be caused by water flowing uh, flowing down into the crater. But then they say, but wait, before anybody jumps to conclusions, we don't even know if this is really water or not. And I'm going, so there's evidence that there, that these streaks are caused by water, but you're not sure yet. It was like the biggest tease because I'm like, oh my God, there's water on Mars. Oh, there really isn't. Oh, they don't know. Oh. You know, I know, I know that in one of these Geeks Two shows coming up, we're going to talk about the space program uh, yeah. or the lack of space program. But I'll yeah. tell you the truth: this is one of the reasons why I want to talk about this. They could solve all of this if they would have went to Mars, and they yeah. could have been to Mars three times over already since the space program, the Apollo program, back in the '60s. Get your ass to Mars. Yeah. Get your ass to Mars. You well, know, I get annoyed at this stuff. It's like, oh, we're going to send up another probe, and we're going to look down and take some pictures. And, uh, wow, some crazy lines down there. That could be a river. I think that might be an, an interstate right there. I bet you they got a Sonic down there on Mars. That thing, that, that rock right there looks like it's an ancient Sonic, don't you think? Bubba, what do you think? That's right, Mr. Control. I think that is a Sonic. I'm going to go down there and get me a Biggie Fry and a 40-ounce Coke. I'll tell you what, them aliens, they like Sonics. Well, no, maybe that's just water. I bet you that water's flowing, though. That water's flowing like a river there. That's pretty. I'll take my kayak down there and just kayak on Mars. That's what it looks like from 50,000 feet above the atmosphere in the orbit of Phobos, because I can't see sh- <laughs> Get your ass to Mars. Well, when you say that we could have been to Mars three times, are you talk about sending people there? Heck yes. See, I was thinking about that. If you're like, it's one thing to be in a tiny little space capsule and going from like here to the moon in five days. That that's one thing. But I don't know if I can spend six months in a tin can like that. They would have to build something that's at least comfortable for six months. Yeah, but they've had plans on the drawing board for that kind of stuff for years. Have they? Yeah, oh, yeah, and they've been doing all kinds of stuff. At least 
this was this was a number of years ago, but for a while there, they were doing stuff up in the Antarctic where they were testing out like isolation, and they were testing out how to grow stuff in harsh environments, and I mean they were doing all kinds of stuff where the guys were specifically saying they were doing this for some, you know, to to learn about how to 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 be able to travel to places like Mars or the Moon or whatever in the future. I mean, how? Look, fine, maybe they couldn't have been on Mars by now. Maybe that's mm-hmm. stretching it unless you had, like, Kennedy alive all these years pushing like a madman to get it done. Mm-hmm. But they could have been on the moon. They could have had yeah. a permanent something on the moon where they could have been building stuff. I mean, anything they would have built to go to Mars, they may have to have built in orbit anyways yeah, to but get what's it up the there. Point? Why, would you go to, why would you put anything on the moon? Because what's going to wind up happening is that you'd have this giant nuclear stockpile for all the energy, and then the moon would get blown out of orbit in September 1999. <laughs> right? Ah! Cue music. Am I right? You're, yeah, you're totally right. Because there's nothing else that would happen if we went to the moon. It's the only possible thing. Well, no. The only other thing that could happen is that while they were getting blown out of orbit, they find a giant black rectangular monolith. Uh-huh. That would blow the moon out of orbit. Exactly. <laughs> Which would lead me to my next little astronomy tip, for, or not tip, but my little news thing, is that uh, we're on our way to Jupiter again. Uh, the Juno probe uh, just launched... Uh, two days ago and it's going to study uh, a lot about jupiter about uh, really whether or not our theories of planetary um, evolution were true they're going to study the atmosphere they're going to study the magnetic uh, radiation the magnetic poles they're going to study a whole bunch of stuff about jupiter for a year it's going to do 33 laps around jupiter over one year do a lot of studying mostly about the cloud content and then they're going to dump the thing in Jupiter. Now I'm thinking to myself, if they can send this thing around Jupiter 33 times in one year, why not do it 66 times over two years and learn a little bit more? Well, they probably don't have enough fuel on board, right? No, well, maybe, but that's what solar panels are for. Well, that's true. But they still have to have enough enough actual propellant fuel to keep it in orbit. The orbit's yeah. going to decay, right? Yeah, true. I don't know. I'm not a space expert, but <laughs> you know, I know a little bit. I'm just saying that I... I if you're going to spend all that time and money to put it up there for one year, why not just do it for three? If you're going to spend all that time and money to put that thing up there for a year, why don't you dump all that money into a savings account, save for 10 years with all the things like Juno, and go to Mars? <laughs> because if you get, dude, we need high concept. Look, let me just be all political here for a minute. Okay. America sucks right now yeah well we are falling apart regardless of whether you are on the right or the left or the middle or up or down or otherwise you have to admit america as a country is in decay we are in decline right now and it's a lot of people are just like we don't even know if we're going to be able to come back this is something that kennedy was good at back in his life when he was our president was getting us to believe in something bigger than ourselves Mm -hmm. to get behind something as humanity that we believed in and going to some place like Mars with real tangible benefits for humanity in the long run is something that people could get behind and be like, you know what? That's important. That that fires up my imagination. That makes me want to contribute. That makes me want to be a part of this. Whereas, what makes you want to be a part of anything we're doing today? Oh, the Juno probe. So it's why the Jupiter. No one even knows. They're in busy watching Snooky and Dancing with the Stars. They're like, they don't know about a probe. And what's a probe going to come back and tell us? Oh, some some nerd like us is going to get on NASA TV and be like, uh, we've found that 
theory of evolutionary planetary development is drastically flawed because of a 50 millowave meter discrepancy in the planet's evolutionary orbital balance in relation to its planetary sisters. (laughs) (laughs) Or you could have the president come on TV and say, we're going to Mars. Yeah. If the president came out and said, we're going to Mars, I think, well, you know what's going to wind up happening? A lot of the old stuffy people that run the government are just going to be saying, oh, why do we need to go to Mars? We need to, like, feel it. No, going to Mars makes people feel. It's, an, it's, it's, it's this subconscious thing that we can do something better than just sitting around, as you said, and watching Jersey Shore. Well, I mean, I, I think we're just, as the people, we're played out. I mean, you know, we we spent enough money on crap. We fought enough. Have we have we not fought enough wars? Do we need another war, or can we maybe like take some of the money we used for you know blowing things up and put it into making a cool spaceship that looks like the Enterprise that goes to Mars? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll even take something that looks like the Nostromo. Just go to Mars. <laughs> we need to just show ourselves as a people that what happened in in 1969 was not a fluke. No, I totally 100% agree with you. Mm-hmm. But yes, it is cool that they're still doing something. Is NASA doing the Juno probe? Uh yes. Okay, well, it's good that NASA is still doing something. Then. Yes, yes. We want NASA to do many, many wonderful things over the years. Even though I'm very sad, the space shuttle program is gone. Well, more on that in the future. Yes. A few seconds away from switching to the redundant sent sequencer. T minus twenty-seven seconds. We have gone for redundant set sequencer start. T minus 20 seconds and counting. T minus 15, 14, 13. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. We've gone for main engine start. We have main engine start. Geekiversary. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. August 1st, 1981 is when MTV went on the air for the very first time. I did not have MTV on day one. Um, I, was, I, was, I had suburban cable vision at the time at home. We didn't get MTV for, I, th- I, I want to say it was like maybe a month or two later. Okay, so I actually wanted like to that. ask you about this because I thought that I had remembered seeing the opening a few hours of MTV, but I'm mm-hmm. wrong about that. I must have seen a replay of those opening hours at some early time on MTV. They must have replayed it mm-hmm. because I read actually that MTV's launch was only available on a single cable network in North New Jersey. Yeah. And that and it instantly made me think of you because you are in New Jersey somewhere. I was in Middlesex County, New Jersey, which is sort of it's not North Jersey like Sussex County or anything like that or or Bergen County. It's it's but it's not Central Jersey like So you were not like North you were Central. not in that that first cable system that they had. No, no, Suburban Cablevision oh, was was relatively big at the time. We had gotten cable in January of 81. Getting cable itself was a big deal. But when MTV 
came on suburban cable vision, it was such a big deal for everybody because you had immediate access, not just to the music that was big for, for the time, but you saw these incredible visuals and every video was unique. So the videos gave a unique perspective on maybe some, some different kind of art form that, that they were going with or, or some story that they were trying to tell with the the videos. Or some videos just had some like crap and they just threw something like like the, the video for I ran by a flock of seagulls. I mean, what is that? But then you had big ones like Thriller by Michael Jackson. I mean, MTV was huge. And for me, I was in junior high at the time. The next day at school, everybody was talking about MTV. The metalheads, the nerds, the geeks, the cheerleaders, everybody watched it because there was always something there for somebody and they mixed up the music very, very well. MTV opened with Video Killed the Radio Star, which is by the just buggles. by the Buggles, which is absolutely prophetic. And then it went to Pat Benatar, Rod Stewart, The Who, PhD, who I never even heard of, Cliff Richard, The Pretenders. I still love to this day The Pretenders. Todd Rundgren, Ario Speedwagon, Sticks. So, so, and Thirty Eight Special is in there. Iron Maiden uh, was in that first like two hours. The Cars. I mean, these are people that defined MTV. Watching MTV for people that maybe only liked one kind of music were now exposed to a whole bunch of different kinds of music like for myself at the time i liked like rock and top 40 type stuff but in 1981 i was exposed to things like talking heads or madness or 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 like i knew who fleetwood mac was but i didn't know who the pretenders were at the time it exposed me to a whole bunch of different music we got mtv sometime in i would guess 82 in my Mm -hmm. area or early 82 uh, because I remember the summer of 82 and they had like a top 10 videos of 82 thing. And I think Eddie Murphy was on that year and I remember it. So yeah. at any rate, when they first started, I, I think I'm remembering multiple years throughout the 80s. So I remember Michael Jackson and I remember a lot of Prince being played on it. And, and as well as like, you know, Ario Speedwagon and Foreigner and Sticks and all this other stuff. Def Leppard was all over MTV for a long time too. Mm-hmm. And but the thing is though is as I go back and look at what really happened, MTV started off at, at, in concept as a rock only station. Yeah. And actually there was a big outcry for a while because Rick James wanted uh, his video for Super Freak to be on MTV and they wouldn't mm-hmm. play it. And they wouldn't play it because they had made a format choice to only do rock. And so that brought a big outcry amongst black artists that they weren't getting played and things like that. And eventually it took uh, CBS to threaten removing their entire catalog from MTV's playlist over them not wanting to play Michael Jackson. And that's Mm -hmm. how Michael Jackson got on MTV. And then that opened the door for Prince and Tina Turner and, you know, all these other artists that had different uh, genres of music on there. So Mm -hmm. it, it didn't start off being super diverse, but it definitely got there as time went on. Yeah. But I think what MTV played in the early days that some people weren't hearing, though, was a lot of like, um, it was rock, but it was new wave. And there wasn't uh, there wasn't a whole lot of new wave being played on the radio. 
Mm-mm. No. Um, like the Buggles, for example. The Buggles were pretty clearly New Wave, and they were not a popular band on the Top 40 set yeah. on the radio. I mean, i got to be honest. I, I, I didn't listen to a lot of diverse stuff. I mean, like I said before, there was, there was Top 40. For me, radio was Journey or, or, or stuff like that. Aren't, Just, you, aren't you a big metal fan in general? Yeah, were. but I didn't. I didn't get exposed to. Actually, I didn't get exposed to metal. And I, I like Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd's not metal, even though it sort of gets lumped in there sometimes. I didn't get exposed to metal until MTV. Huh. But I didn't know who the hell Iron Maiden was until MTV. I, okay. I well, yeah. That... Like a, a lot of my musical tastes were very stagnant in the late 70s up until MTV and then once MTV and, and like god I mean like I remember seeing Once in a Lifetime by the Talking Heads and just like this stuff is amazing well, I think one of the things that MTV did really well it was kind of a, it was a, like a lot of early cable in that it was very basic and very sort of community almost feeling mm-hmm. the, the VJs you all knew them personally the, the, they had back in the day they had VJs for anybody who didn't grow up with early MTV and People like Martha Quinn. Martha and, Quinn. Yeah, she was Nina uh, Blackwood. J.J. Uh, Jackson. J.J. Jackson. Who is um, who is the white guy? Who's the white guy? There was Mark Goodman. I really Mark like Goodman. Mark Goodman. The other guy was Alan Hunter. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So they, but the the VJs would be sort of like your DJs, but on TV, and you got to know these people really well because they were on like 24 hours a day, basically, mm-hmm. you know, spinning all these different songs and introducing you to new music. And they would break for commercials and things like that, but it wasn't super saturated with commercials. But all they would do was play videos and talk about music. There were no other shows. There, there mm-hmm. wasn't a single show that they had. Their mm-hmm. show were the music videos, and that went on for years yeah. like that. And that was that station. I remember you'd go into like an arcade back in the old days, mm-hmm. and they'd have MTV on the screens. You'd go into yeah. a pizza place, and they'd have MTV up on the screen. You'd just put it on in the background like a radio in your home, and MTV would be playing. And you'd yep. hear all kinds of stuff, and you got to know the VJs. It was essentially a really good radio station for TV, and it was a pretty cool and a pretty big deal. And mm-hmm. It's one of those things where, sadly, uh, that's one of my big uh, complaints about current television. MTV fits the mold of that complaint, which is right now they don't hardly play any videos at all anymore unless it's on, like, MTV4 or whatever station is now playing the videos. And they did that uh, because they had, you know, not making enough money. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't even really a, a formatting choice. It was they didn't make enough money just playing videos. And unfortunately, uh, that's sad because those early days were awesome. Oh, they were. Music videos did were not created for MTV. We had HBO, and even before that, there were some people in my town that had something called Wemetco Home Theater, uh, WWHT, which is Channel 68. And what they would do is they would broadcast regular TV shows uh, like The Uncle Floyd Show or something like that at 6 o'clock, and then at 8 o'clock they would show movies. In between the movies, they would show videos. And I remember watching like on HBO before they went 24-7, in between movies, they would show things like Queen videos or Hardware Wars or Closet Encounters of the Nerd Kind. And this, th- that was my first exposure to videos. But MTV was, was finally the way to take all those videos and finally throw them into their own channel. It's- well, there was um, a video jukebox on HBO, too. That's what it was, um, yes. Video yep. jukebox. Yeah. yeah. Well, they say, too, that a lot of the videos they played on MTV in the early days were 
pre to the moment when the companies were actually making videos all the time for their artists. And mm-hmm. so they would play promo videos, which were not the same as music videos. And basically, sometimes they would cobble together footage from concerts, or they'd put these guys in a closed studio and they'd just play. And it was used to sell albums and send around to different people interested in buying their stuff and putting them on the radio and things like that. And they would roll this stuff onto MTV and say, here you go, which is why you have the early videos are sometimes sort of flat and on cheap video and everything else. But there was a, there was sort of a charm to that too. You know, it was, it was, um, it was like pure music and Mm -hmm. the pure representation of what they were doing before. You know, if you contrast like some of the early videos with say something like Kanye West power or something that just came out, right. Or anything by Lady Gaga or Katy Perry or something. That kind of stuff that's coming out today is so highly polished. It's it's like highly polished filmic propaganda for these artists, and it's mm-hmm. just riddled with all kinds of, you know, messaging and advertising skill to try to pimp these artists and their music out and ideas and sell things and everything else. The era of MTV was pre all of that, and I think better for it. It was it was it was honest. MTV was honest. That's the best way to say that. I guess it'd be yeah. That's a that's a good way of putting it. Uh, what what music did you get exposed to because of MTV? In the earliest days of it, it was stuff like Flock of Seagulls, mm-hmm. uh, more new wave kind of stuff. I, I remember seeing the Cars early days, and I had never heard the Cars on the radio for some reason. And I, I remember thinking the Cars were really good. But as time went on, and like I said, they sort of evolved the format, it was stuff like Prince and More Stay in the Time and... Uh, stuff like that that I really got into and I thought wow this is great so yeah for me I remember I remember specifically the Eurythmics I remember hearing Sweet Dreams Are Made of This for the very first time just being mesmerized not so much by the video but by the music I remember having like a, a, a scrap piece of scrap paper that I would write stuff down on because then you couldn't just go to your computer, go to iTunes, and then like buy nope. this stuff. No, nope. you had to write this stuff down, and if you missed it, you missed it. Yep. There was no website to say this is what MTV played in the last twenty minutes, and and then if it wasn't, if you missed it, then you had to wait to see if you could find it again if they played it again, like maybe four or five or six hours later, and um, and so I would take this this piece of scrap paper to Sam Goody at the, at the Woodbridge mall. And I would go and I would look for the 45s of the albums. And that's why I have such a massive collection of 45s and they're in the next room. And I still have them. So I want to know uh, if you, if you had a single video that really you remember from those early days, like really sticks in your mind as being from MTV and that's where you saw it. And it just still lives in your brain and you associate it with that. What is that video? Take on me. For me, it's Mickey by Tony Basil. Oh, my God. (laughs) Really? Yeah. (laughs) Which I do have on a 45, by the way. But but I... (laughs) You know, I found out that Tony Basil had a lot of stuff before that video came out. Oh, I'm sure. A lot of them did. A lot of stuff. Take on me, even though it was years later, it was 1985, for me was the pinnacle of what videos were as an art form. 
And even though, yeah, there was Michael Jackson's Thriller, which I think was cinematic and, and wonderful and awesome, but I still think that uh, that Take on Me is is one of the best videos ever made. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I still think it's really awesome. It's that whole illustrative kind of thing that they did, mm-hmm. but. I don't know. There's just something about, oh, Mickey, he's so fine. He's oh, so fine. He blows my God. mind. Hey, Mickey. Oh, hey, Mickey. He could stop. <laughs> MTV had such a presence, not just in my life, but my friends, is that we would call each other on the phone and say, such and such video is on. Turn it on right now. Yeah. No, I did the same thing. You don't know well, that there's, now. But there's no way you can do it now. No, there's no way. Because, again, there was, there, I mean, very few people had VCRs. You know, now if something comes out and you miss it, you just turn it on, like go to the website and there look it, it is. up. Yeah, well, and, and the, they, they, I have read things too that said that the internet really hurt MTV as well. Is that they don't yeah. play videos or they don't even play them in full anymore. They'll show clips and then say you can see the rest at triple w dot you know whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things. It's like you know, I know I think listeners probably who have been listening to you and me both for a while um, might get the impression that we're just like these. We're like we're like the two old guys on the Muppet Show that are constantly <laughs> bitching about stuff. You know, oh, it could have been better. What was that? It's called the medium sketch. The medium sketch? Yeah, it wasn't rare and it certainly wasn't well done. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't actually think that I'm like that, but I think that there are certain things that we do talk about that I do feel that way about. But the internet is not one of them. I think the internet is great. And I think, you know, we're in some golden years in respect to... You know, or maybe the silver years at this point, but we're definitely in an age where the internet is a big deal. And I don't have a lot of negative things to say about it, but the internet has killed certain things. And one mm-hmm. of the things I think it killed is stuff like MTV, unfortunately. And it's, you know, it's, it is unfortunate because that kind of programming really had some charm to it. Mm-hmm. Again, I, it was honest. And it, it was honest. that honesty is something that we don't have a lot of today. It's yeah. very corporatized, very polished, and things back then were not polished. In fact, it's funny because uh, I, another thing I was looking up and then I saw as I watched the first couple hours of MTV's initial run uh, here over the week just to prep for this segment, I noticed there was a lot of pauses between the videos and like really bad breaks in the, in the uh, control track of the video and stuff like that. Well, yeah. they were swapping in and out tapes manually. Yeah. That's what was going on. Because I I read about it, and I'm like, see, that's honest. You don't get any more honest than that. (laughs) It's some dudes in a station, and the VJs are in the other room, and, you know, they come back live, and they're sitting there, and it's, you know, they're going to give you the best they got. You saw their real personalities, just like on live radio, and you went back to, you know, putting the video in, and sometimes they'd wrestle with the tape and wouldn't get it in right, or it would pick up the very tail end of the, the, uh, (laughs) like, the the barcode, and it was great. And there's just something about that that I know it's sloppy. I've said this yeah. before on Taverncast. Yes, it's sloppy. Yes, it's not professional. But there's something about that that's awesome. Yep. It feels like your hometown radio station. And there's something about that that just makes you smile and just makes you maybe just like life a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. Maybe the, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, under 25 and you're out there listening to Geekistry, if you totally disagree with me, and, you know, you're used to growing up in an environment where television and all media is super polished. And you think it's like, no, that dude, that's crazy. You know, let us know. Because I'd actually be curious to know what your opinion is as a younger person. I'll put up on the on the forums my top ten MTV videos from the early days, from from eighty one up until the point where I went to college and then stopped watching MTV because we didn't have cable. Those four years, I'll write my top ten list. 
Awesome. Yeah, I'll do the same thing. And then listeners, go up there and let us know. Make a good conversation. Yeah. Who's listened to Mike or I over the years on any of our respective podcasts must know or have heard at one part or the other that we are big film score or movie soundtrack fans. We get we got to talking here not too long ago, a few weeks ago, about uh, current scores, scores in the say the past decade or so. And our initial conversation was hedging around once again the two old men up in the Muppets gallery. There in my day, film scores were better. In the 80s, everything in the 80s was great. Do you remember, Mike, in the 80s when you went to the bathroom, it actually smelled like strawberries? And now it smells like shit. And that's because the kids these days don't know anything about going to the bathroom. That's exactly the conversation we had. But no, actually, it, it, we... It was. <laughs> no, but uh, we actually decided we wanted to go and take a look at some of the scores from the past 10 years in, in our collections and on the Internet and actually decide whether or not, you know, that was really true. And I think what we found is that, no, actually, that's not really true, but there have been some significant changes. And so our topic for today is not film scores in general, but film scores of the past decade, mm-hmm. from about 2010 to 2000 or so. And uh, we wanted to just give you what we thought were the very best top ten each, Mike and I, 
uh, the past films and game scores mm-hmm. of the past decade because games have played a really big part. So before we get into that list, uh, let's talk about some some generalities about film scores of the past ten years. So the film scores that you and I have really liked that we believe are classics. Like just throw out just off the top of your head, really rapidly, two or three what you consider to be classic film scores. Star Wars, Star Trek Two, and The Empire Strikes Back. Okay, I would say Close Encounters, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Gremlins. Well, it, they all have something in common, right? They're all well, in the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, well, Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams, mm-hmm. two very prominent and excellent composers. Unfortunately, uh, Jerry Goldsmith died not too long ago, so he's no longer with us. But his son is, and his son is doing some pretty uh, admirable work on numerous mm-hmm. television shows and movies and things like that. But these composers did the bulk of what we grew up with as kids, and I think that we think are really great scores. I think that there were great scores in the past as well. I think of people like Max Steiner, like Bernard Herrmann, mm-hmm. like Elmer Bernstein, um, and these guys, these guys make great movies as well. So, uh, somebody like Bernard Herrmann is very famous for things like Psycho and uh, Cape Fear and North by Northwest and all kinds of Hitchcock movies, mm-hmm. for example. So, there's been great scores since movies started. And the thing we were wondering about is the Captain America score, which is done by Alan Silvestri, just came out, and they put a clip before the whole. Soundtrack was actually released on iTunes, and we listened to it, and we felt that the clip that they used, at any rate, was really not very good. And Mm -hmm. why did we say, Mike, that it wasn't very good? What was notably lacking? What was lacking was a theme. The the one thing that I like about movie soundtracks is that you can take the soundtrack out of the movie, and it stands fine on its own. It's something that you hum, something that you walk away and you can remember. Like, uh, you know, quiz you really quick. Just really quick, first few notes of the Indiana Jones theme. Go. Dun, 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 dun. Everybody How about Jaws? <laughs> <laughs> How about Star are gonna, Wars? Are you going to make me look like a fool? Yeah, absolutely. How about okay, Star good. Wars? Okay, good. Okay. And my point is, is that everyone knows this because they're great themes. And what we were trying <laughs> to figure out was what had happened with themes in general. Are, are they not out there anymore? Do we, do we remember anything notable from the past 10 years? And our initial thought was, not really, until we started looking. And that brings us to our very best top 10 of the past 10 years. Um, Mike, why don't you just go down your lists? You give me one, then I'll give you one, and then we'll go back and forth until we get to 20 films and games right. that we think are good. And talk just a little bit about what was good about those and why you think they stand out a little bit. Well, I've got my, my list is broken up, but I'm, I'm just going to start with the soundtrack that I probably have listened to the most in the last six months than probably anything that I've listened to in the last few years, which is Tron Legacy. by Daft Punk and here are two guys that have created dance tracks 
for the last few years, and they created this amazing soundtrack for this movie. And you can argue whether or not Tron Legacy was good, but I, I absolutely loved the movie. I and agree with you. It's on my list as well. And I think one of the greatest things about it is it has great themes. There's mm-hmm. thematic work for the various characters. It's called Leitmotif. And it's for a group like Daft Punk, who isn't even a, a film, a bunch of guys who film score at all. They use Leitmotif better than almost anybody else out there recently. Mm-hmm. Really good job on Tron Legacy, I agree. They, uh, God, I mean, they, they made such a sonic landscape for this movie, which matched the world that you're watching. And I, I play this movie, I play this soundtrack over and over again when I'm like playing WoW or coding or something like that I have a playlist and I've cobbled together the, um, all the different pieces of the soundtrack because there was the CD and then there was the UK CD and then there was then you had to buy this track from someplace you had to buy that track from someplace and I finally put them all together and I have this one big giant Tron Legacy complete playlist and I loop it well and one thing that Daft Punk did really good with uh, that score is they did a modern score. There's a, I can I can cite you about a million scores that are done that are trying to be modern. Mm-hmm. Um, things like um, a lot of Brian Tyler scores for the Fast and Furious movies, for example. Very sort of rock-driven, kind of electronica kind of stuff going on. Sometimes those are successful, but more often than not, they're not. And one thing Daft Punk did is use electronics to really great effect, where I don't think that they're often used that good. And they made a score that is not only sort of cutting edge from a um, uh, popular music standpoint, but it's cutting edge from a film score standpoint as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So one that comes up on my list is the entire series score from Battlestar Galactica by Mm -hmm. composer Bear McCreary. Incredible use of not only thematic stuff, which is sort of the theme for this topic, but also some really incredible instrumentation, ethnic instrumentation from all over the world, which is really surprising for the fact that the show is a sci-fi show, and he's using tons of ethnic instruments all the way through it. He's got really incredible and interesting themes and movements and songs that just get stuck in your head, Uh, and not just the opening credits. Actually, more surprisingly, stuff in the middle of the series for individual characters. Mm -hmm. Um, The theme for Commander Adama and Leodama, for example, called Wander My Friends uh, is something that uh, gets played a lot on a lot of people's playlists right now. I listen to the soundtrack every now and then, but the one issue that I have with it is, as great as it is, when you're trying to listen to it from, let's say, season two to season four through, because I do that sometimes, is there's just way too much percussion in it to listen to it continuously. I think that's just his thing. In the that same way is. that Williams has got like disjointed strings and things like yeah. that, um, I think that's Bear McCreary's style uh, yeah. in the drums. Because there's a there's a video game score out there uh, called Dark Void, I think is what it is. Mm-hmm. But it's Bear McCreary's work on that too, and it's very similar. Lots of drums, lots mm-hmm. of stuff like that. And I think that's his, his thing. Next for me is, I, I've got to say, it's Lord of the Rings. 
probably one of the most perfect film scores ever made. Yeah, it's opinion. on my list too. Uh, How can you go ten years and not say that Lord of the Rings was a, was an important score? Yeah, um, this is another soundtrack that I listen to while I'm playing coding. I gotta say though, playing an MMORPG like like WoW or EQ2 while you're playing the Lord of the Rings soundtrack fits great. <laughs> but <laughs> apart from that, I, the music itself is just—it's so good. I think it's—it's it's uplifting. It's—it's it's emotional. It's—it's a—it's perfect. Well, and what's good about the Lord of the Rings score too is not only does it have again centrally memorable themes. It's like you remember it. I know it right off the top of my head. But it's got some other really great just film score moments that are, are are subtle and well composed and they're things that a, a lot of people these days a lot of the composers the younger composers even if they, they are good with some of the theme work sometimes they could become a one-trick pony in that they have a theme and then they use that theme over and over again and they don't really deviate from it one of the things that howard shore did for the lord of the Rings soundtracks and granted he's not a you know a young composer but he did a lot of really subtle work through the lord of the Rings series too mm-hmm. i think one of my favorite uh, areas in all of the Lord of the Rings scores is the Fellowship of the Ring, where they go to the um, Argonaths, the two mm-hmm. the two giant statues point or uh, blocking the way into the the canyon on the river that you see in the movie, and that score that they hit it there is just sort of like ominous and epic and pastoral. It's just a it's just a great little piece that a younger composer probably wouldn't have even thought to do there. I read some notes of, of what he said about because because the big soundtracks come with a book, and I didn't really notice this, but he uses nine notes in most of the themes, huh? And he ties them together with with the theme of like nine, like a trilogy of a trilogy of notes. Interesting. Yeah. Well, see, and that's one of the things that sometimes makes a good score. Yeah. All right. So I've uh, in the same vein of high fantasy. I think that. And it's hard to keep John Williams off your list, in any list, especially while the man is alive. But as much as I think John Williams' work of late, as he has aged, has gotten a little repetitive and not as good, uh, Harry Potter, one, two, and three, those scores are some of his best work of his career. I don't, I don't put him up there against indie or Star Wars, but it's in the top ten of his scores somewhere. I love the Harry Potter scores for one, two, and three. I like the Harry Potter scores for a lot of the other movies as well, but those particular three are um, fantastic works by Williams. Specifically, The Prisoner of Azkaban has got incredible and um, nuanced work in there and some really memorable themes. The Harry Potter score alone is an incredibly memorable theme that you can pick up immediately. Um, I'm going to have to move on with John Williams also and go in a different direction and say Star Wars Avenger the Sith.
That actually made your list. I it made my list because you know what it was. What is it? The second half of the film, when things start going bad, he, the 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 first half of the film was just this, as you were saying before, the repetitive repetitiveness. But the second half of the movie, I think, was just brilliant work by him. I I don't disagree with you that it was some really good stuff there. Uh, I just I guess I didn't think that. The, the prequel scores for Star Wars were all that innovative. Although, having said that, as you look back at it, you sure do remember a lot of the things like the Duel of the Fates theme, the, mm-hmm. the Darth Maul theme really comes to mind. Um, and I can remember even Anakin's theme. And why I know that, I don't know. So maybe that's a testament to John Williams, and I'm shortchanging him by not having this, some, some version of the scores for the prequel Star Wars movies in my list. Actually, keeping with John Williams, and the last time he appears on my list, I actually worked in The Patriot, which I think is uh, um, a superior work by John Williams. And again, um, incredibly memorable thematic work. so memorable actually that the patriot is used all over the place now football games sporting events political rallies things like that mainly because of its you know uber americana patriotic kind of thing but uh love that score by john by williams i'm gonna go my next one as i mentioned before in a different show is final fantasy the spirits within which I think was just a, a hauntingly great score. Uh, not repetitive, very bombastic uh, in some places and, and ethereal in others. And I think that uh, for the last 10 years, I think it's definitely one of the best ones. And if you have the original DVD, not the Blu-ray that's out now, unfortunately, but the original DVD has the entire score beginning to end with his commentary on it. Although he does talk over it sometimes, which I'm a little disappointed about, but... It's good. Ellie Goldenthal does some uh, has some reasonably decent scores. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aliens three, as much as we threw uh, Alien three under the bus in fifty eight G fifty eight, the score for that movie is actually pretty outstanding. What what what, what movie? What Alien three? What I Alien three? Oh, that's right. That movie I... doesn't exist. What I'll tell you, a movie that does exist though, and that is the Transformers movies, which make my list by composer Steve Jablonski, heavily influenced from the Hans Zimmer school of film scoring. And it sounds a hell of a lot like Hans Zimmer. All three of them, one, two, and three, with an edge going to the first score and the one for Dark of the Moon that just came out. Fantastic work.
I think, for my money, the best theme in the past 10 years has been the theme for Optimus Prime. You think so? You think it absolutely? Even, you think it even beats Fellowship of the Ring? Absolutely. Ooh. There is something for me Fight. about that Optimus Prime theme. I Fight. love it. Dude, there's something about there. There's only a few times in the Transformers series where where even that theme comes to its fruition. But it's one of those things where you remember in a lot of the movies in the 70s and 80s, the big movies, uh, Star yeah. Wars and things like that. Superman the movie is a great example of using a theme uh, in a heroic way during a pivotal moment. Okay, when Superman saves like Lois Lane in the helicopter in that first scene in Superman the movie, the heroic Superman theme comes up, and you want to just stand up and cheer because you're like, yay, the Superman theme. A lot of movies don't do that now for some crazy reason. So again, it's a lack of leitmotif, and I, it's, I think either composers are just deciding not to use it, it's a stylistic thing, or they don't know how anymore. I don't know what it is. But Steve Jablonski in the Transformers movies, when Optimus Prime shows up in the first movie, finally into the city to kick Megatron's butt, and that theme comes up, you just want to cheer for a truck. You're just like, this is awesome. This is so awesome. And the same thing happens in the second movie and the subsequent part and in the third movie. And every time that comes up, it's just it's one of those classic uses of a great theme coupled to a heroic moment that just makes you go like, hell yes. So Transformers by Steve Jablonski. <laughs> All right. My next one is going to be Avatar by James Horner. people or the, the tall blue people get a lot of crap uh, they call it dances with wolves in space but i think it's one of the best the or the best soundtracks that have come out in the last 10 years by far um beautiful beautiful music in that one it has some of james horner's repetitiveness in it but it's yeah. just fresh enough to be cool it, it doesn't make my list but i have to agree that it's pretty good i think i think actually avatar somewhat related spawned what i think is the best pop theme related to a movie on the same soundtrack and that's the I See You mm-hmm. song. I actually like that for some reason. Oh, yeah. I can't get it out of my head. So, so then that's a tribute to James Horner because he wrote the, the main theme to Avatar, which is okay. I See You, and that's what ended up being that pop song, so... One of the things that we might talk about here a little bit more in the future or even today, but that's worth discussing here, is the impact that game scores have had on the whole genre of scoring in general. It's been monumental. And one of the renaissance pieces that's really happened in the past decade or so is the movement of classically trained composers and full orchestras into video game music. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really didn't happen. If it happened at all, I don't recall it, but it didn't happen very much uh, back before... 
2000 or so. And there there have been some major standouts, but I'll tell you, there are two scores that, that made my list from the game scoring time period, or from the game scoring efforts that really stand out. And the biggest one is a really hard to find, out of left field score by a composer named Leon Willett, who has done absolutely nothing since this score. He did one score, and it's the score for the game Dreamfall. out of nowhere and did this amazing John Williams-esque lush epic score and then disappeared. Mm -hmm. I love the music to Dreamfall. Dreamfall is one of those it's on Steam by the way an amazing game except I never finished it but I I got a little pissed off with the mechanics of the fighting. The fighting has to be yeah the fighting has to be probably one of the worst aspects of this game but the story is so good I, I was just enthralled by the characters and the story, and it was it was just amazing. Yeah, actually, I, I got the game because of the score. I found the score mm-hmm. before the game and then got the game. And I have to say, you know, we're really not talking about games, but, yeah, I thought it was a pretty good game for what I played of it, too. I, I didn't finish it either, and primarily it was because of that stupid fighting mechanic, too, that blocked certain certain pathways to continue. But aside from that... I just don't I I don't get that score. It was amazing. It's one of the best scores out there in the past 10 years by mm-hmm. far. And who is this guy and where did he go? <laughs> you can't even find that much information about him online. He's just he's just out he's there just somewhere. Out there. I'm like, he's dude, gone. Leon, seriously. Get back out there, dude, because you're incredible. <laughs> like John Williams incredible. Get back out there and do some more stuff. Yeah. My next one is going to be The Social Network by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Interesting. Uh, well, it, it won uh, best score of 2010. I was like, really, as a Nine Inch Nails fan, I have watched Trent Reznor go from covered in mud in the 90s to writing film scores in 2010. Watching this guy mature, uh, like not not just personally but musically over the last few years, you want this guy to win, and he did. He won an Academy Award for best score, and it's it's not one that I listen to often. But it takes a story and and it builds this music underneath it to sort of breathe life into how you're feeling about what's going on in this movie. But I think a lot of times film scores don't have to be bombastic. I think a lot of people 
A lot of people think that when when you talk about film score, it has to be something like Indiana Jones or Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it doesn't have to be. There are uh, there are great examples, a la The Social Network, mm-hmm. that that are that are sort of underscored attempts, but they're so nuanced mm-hmm. and and so packed full of emotion and depth that they deliver on a different on a different level than just like some giant heroic theme. Yeah. Well, in the same theme theme of uh, highly emotional scores or scores that are just sort of um, maybe a little bit more underplayed, uh, one that makes my list in the past ten years is The Passion of the Christ by John Debney. Here's a movie that saw tons of controversy, obviously, but the score is, it's reminiscent of the score for Ben-Hur by Miklos Rosa, um, in the sense that that score was, it took religious themes and sort of made them really epic and um, emotive and things like that. John Debney sort of channels that Miklos Rosa kind of thing, mm-hmm. but it's also just very nuanced and um, very emotional that score is and it's got one of the very best best end themes of the decade Uh, probably probably of any movie that has come out in the past decade the way that movie ends is really incredible and the score matches it on to to video games myself there are a couple video games that i have listed in here that that you can't not talk about one of them is world of warcraft People might say, well, of course he's going to mention Warcraft. There's a show about it. Well, what got me into Warcraft was actually the music. I started, because I was an EverQuest fanboy, and I was getting a little tired of EQ2. There were some mechanics that were pissing me off. And so I bought World of Warcraft, almost feeling guilty about it. And I started in Night Elf, and the music in Teldrassil, apart from the art direction in that game, is what sucked me into that game and kept me there. the only reason World of Warcraft didn't didn't make my top ten list is because it just got pushed out by what I felt were ultimately uh, better works. But that doesn't mean that uh, it didn't make my list of honorable mentions. Mm-hmm. In fact, the only Warcraft scores that, that don't make the list at all are the scores for uh, Wrath of the Lich King and Cataclysm, which I felt uh, were not as strong as the previous stuff by uh, Russell Brower and Jason Hayes, but specifically Jason Hayes. The, the original classic World of Warcraft soundtrack has yeah. um, got a lot of really great themes to it, and Jason Hayes is responsible for that. And you interviewed Jason Hayes. 
I did. There's um, there's a Taverncast episode uh, with, mm-hmm. where we talked to Jason Hayes. Moving into uh, a, a genre that isn't covered at all in my top ten list except for once is the horror genre. And horror movies generally, um, you either have incredibly standout scores or you have really sort of crappy underscores and they're really not all that noticeable one way or the other. In the standout scores, I think of things like Poltergeist, for example, which is just like, oh my God, it's such a great score for a horror movie. Mm -hmm. In that theme is the one that makes my top 10 list, and that's The Ring by Hans Zimmer. is just some incredible work not only is it creepy but it's also lyrically very sound and there's a theme to it that is pretty memorable as well Mm. and Hans Zimmer um, that was the score of all his scores he's done in the past 10 years that's the one I've picked but I think Hans Zimmer is one of our uh, number one composers working out there today the guy does really strong and great work in fact you know his Pirates of the Caribbean films also has some really great stuff in it too and is what I think most people in the past decade probably remember from Hans Zimmer is, is that theme but I think he's more nuanced and more effective in the ring one of the other soundtracks that I, I can't ignore over the last 10 years for video games is Halo I mean, tell me anybody who doesn't know the theme to Halo. I'll be honest with you. I know it. I don't like it. I, <laughs> I really don't like Halo at all. <laughs> I know it's sad, but I don't like it. Oh, I just absolutely love the Halo story. The score supports it. Uh, granted, there are some parts in the game itself which are a little repetitious, so the soundtrack does get a little repetitious. So in, in Halo 1, it sounds more like a cross between a classic and video game type soundtrack but by the time you get to halo 3 it's it's so much better maybe i should give a chance to halo 3 then because i've got halo the original halo game and Mm -hmm. i didn't like it and i think the reason i didn't like it is that it felt like it was a clear throwback to the 90s video game scoring efforts uh, with some notable sort of cool composing stuff in there for some of the themes but it was too disjointed for me but if you say uh, if you say it improves in the sequels, I'll have to check that out. Okay. My next one is Final Fantasy X. This is another one of those soundtracks I listen to while I'm working constantly. It is, at its core, a video game soundtrack, but it's got a couple of really nice gems to it. And I, I, I listen to the whole thing. It's four CDs, and I'll listen to track one all the way to the very end. It's, it's very bombastic, and it's emotional, and oh, it's, it's just got such a, a wide range of, of great music. It's another one I've never heard. 
actually. Never don't know anything about that score. Have you ever played a Final Fantasy game? Never once. Uh, they will take your life away for several months. <laughs> but, but but depending on the game, when you when you come out of it, you will say, "Holy crap, that was like the best thing I've ever done." Now it sounds like sounds like World of Warcraft <clears throat> all over again. Well, yeah, except the World of Warcraft has no ending. Like a Final Fantasy game, it just it, it ends and that's it. And then and then you're left with going, "Oh, I want to do that again." Oh, see, to me, that's like the uh, Mass Effect games from yeah. Bioware. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Where yes. it's just like, "Oh my god, I just read like this great novel slash watched a great movie." So yes, yeah. uh, I, I would have to say cool. that that Final Fantasy and Mass Effect, even though they they come at an uh, an RPG from two completely different directions. The end result is that you you feel like yes I have just like played the best game ever, uh, and my last one on my list because obviously um, Mike and I have got some things that were doubled up. The last video game on my list, and it's Lair by composer John Debney. John Debney and John Williams are the two composers that make my list numerous times. And again, Lair was incredible. Uh, Lair was very Williams-esque, again, sweeping, epic. London Symphony Orchestra, just a choir, the full nine yards, to a game that, from what I understand, had horrible mechanics and wasn't (laughs) well-received. But uh, Lair is one of those scores that I'll play and think about other things with, like if I'll be writing a story or something like that. Um, Lairs always makes my shortlist for that because I don't associate it with anything else. But Lair is fan flippantastic. So that's it for both of both of our top tens. I think we just gave you uh, what we think are clearly the some of the best in the in the past decade from two old school and seasoned film score fans. And I think what we <laughs> found out is that there really are and have been some really good work in the past decade. Whereas I think going into this, I think I've been a little jaded lately and been like, eh, eh, film scores. <laughs> that was a great number. I don't care what you say. I thought it was dumb. Maybe you're right. <laughs> I think they're evolving. Don't you, Mike? I think they're evolving in the same way that in the golden age of cinema, they had stuff like Bernard Herrmann and Max Steiner and Miklos Rosa and stuff like that. And they had their own certain style. And then they evolved in the 60s and 70s to go more towards like a populist, modern, jazzy, rocky, acid rock kind of <laughs> thing. And then they then they came full forward or full full turn back into like rich, lush, cinematic, orchestrated scores with John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith and things like that. Mm-hmm. And now they're kind of moving into a hybrid of pop music and electronic music mixed with orchestral music Mm -hmm. and the real explosion right now for my money is in game scores i think some of the very best work that's being done right now is not in film but it's in game scores scores. i think what's going on with game scores is that one they're they're starting to emulate film stuff in the respect of having full orchestras and and being able to use that level of music in games Mm -hmm. and so because they're doing that they're attracting people 
who are composers of that level of music from film and television work to come over and do games. They're getting more respect, too. Game franchises are, are, are a lot more respected now than they would have been 10 years ago. It's becoming a thing where a lot of games now will be turned into, like, you know, major motion pictures and book series and things like that. There's a lot of creative energy being poured into games right now, much more than there was 10 years ago. And I think that's why you're attracting that stuff. But at the same time, to me, it seems that a lot of film work is getting not across the board, but a lot of times derivative, very derivative and stale. There are breakouts, uh, for sure. There always will be, but more than not, it's very derivative now. People just sort of copying the old stuff to just going for the easy score on a, on a lot of things. But yeah. games are kind of where it's at right now. I think I've been blown away by the, by the diversity of scores and the diversity of talent and all the new talent that's coming up in games mm-hmm. like Jason Hayes and Russell Brower and Jeremy sure. Sewell Michael Giacchino, who, oh, for, yeah. who, is, who is actually an interesting because he came from games and is now going into movies and TV. Mm-hmm. So it, it goes both ways. So we want to hear from you. What are your favorite video game or, or movie soundtracks from the last 10 years? You can even go even further back. Tell us what your background is in, in liking uh, video game or movie soundtracks. And, and, and if you like video game soundtracks, how did you discover them? That's what I'd like to know. And well, and we'll put it? we'll put our uh, top ten lists up on the forums, and mm-hmm. also we have uh, sort of an extended series of honorable mentions, both in film and TV and video games. And if nothing else, it might be uh, a good way to see what others have thought are good scores. Uh, and I'd like to learn some new ones too. So if I see a bunch of stuff up there I've never seen, I'm definitely going to go check it out. And it's only up on our forums. You're going to have to go sign in and get active, but uh, it'll be a great place to find out some new info and get some discussions going. Mm-hmm. That's it for a Geekistry episode 59. Yay! Disco fun time go! Ga ga ga! <laughs> I'm just reading what Bryce is typing here in, in the Google Doc. Just just keep typing. I'll just I'll Jojo, Gaga. There we go. Join. I'm I'm ignoring you now. I'm I'm ignoring the cursor. Join the Geekistry community. Talk to us about the stuff that we talked about on the show. Our forums are at geekistry.com/forums or give us a call. If you like what we're doing here, and, you know, really, why would you not? Please head up to iTunes. Starman.me. Boom. Oh, the wonderful, you know, here's the thing. is Google, Google Docs is making it possible for us to type things into the doc. We're looking at it as our outline while we're speaking. And the kinds of things that are being written into the document. Uh, it's like, no, we haven't been doing this forever. No, We no. still have to have this crap typed out. Please head up to iTunes. Give us a review. Your reviews, they help move the show up in the ratings. They attract new listeners. And it keeps the Wookiee from ripping your arms off. So we would love to have some great reviews up there if you like what we're doing. And that's been your bi-weekly geek out. Thanks for listening and see you next time. See you next time.
Find us on the web at geekistry.com. Email us at feedback at geekistry.com. And follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Google Plus as Geekistry. Start. I am. You must I am, start. I'm recording now. Start I'm recording now. 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 Are you doing, doing it now? It now. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Do it. Actually, wait. Do it. Just do something real quick. Let do me it. Get my do phone it. out. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Okay. And go. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Are you ready? And yes. go. And right. go. And Broadcast. go. And go. <laughs> I just want to ask. You know, we'll give you... It, well... Ah. By the way, so, you spelled booking wrong. You fell. It isn't it W O O K I E? Two E's. Really? It's no. not Wookie like Cookie. <laughs> no. <laughs> so you lose your geek cred for the day. <sighs> Wookie. I'm stuttering. I don't know why. So join the Geekistry community. <laughs> <laughs>